I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. As always, I am Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. we got a good show for you today. Today, we're going to be talking to the author and editor of the book Teen Movie Hell, a crucible of coming-of-age comedies from Animal House to Zapped. That's released by Bazillion Points. Uh, I actually don't know where that book label is. It's local, right? Kind of local? Semi-local? Uh, where's he in at, Mike? Yeah. Uh, it was in Brooklyn. He's now in Switzerland. Well, oh. that's not local at all, then. He's, uh, <laughs> he also did that uh, Texas is the Reason book we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. their latest release. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Pat Blasel. Yeah. They put out some really cool stuff, uh, metal and punk and you know, weird politics and things like that. So kind of like the old Amic Press and research, uh, but for a, a modern era. Yeah. 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 A lot of black metal stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's a nice guy. Nice guy. So as well, we and our guest is a nice guy. As you could hear, he's already chimed in. We are speaking with Mike McPadden. Mike is a local guy. Mike, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a thrill. Really appreciate it. Let's start off with the basics. I mean, I think people that hear the, the title of this uh, realize that this is a reference to movies and a movie guide. Uh, and you had a background in, in zines as well, I understand. Can you talk a little bit about how you got interested, first of all, in the teen movie genre? And, and I'd kind of like to then expand that a little bit and just talk to our our listeners, excuse me, not our viewers, uh, about why uh, there is such a fascination with kind of niche movie genres and cult cinema in general. Okay, terrific. So uh, in terms of the teen movie genre, as it's covered in the book, so the book goes um, basically from uh, the late 60s when I was born um, with a, a movie called The First Time in 1968 uh, to the early 90s. Uh, the, the most recent movie covered in there is uh, National Lampoon's Senior Trip from 95. But uh, really the main focus is on the 1980s, which, is, which was the, you know, incredible pop culture takeover you know however momentarily even though it lasted it did last a few years of uh you know r-rated raunchy comedies aimed at teenage audiences that were about teenage characters and the reason i was fascinated with it was because that's when i was a teenager uh fast times at ridgemont high opened in new york where i'm from i'm from brooklyn i've lived in chicago since 2003 though so uh, but it opened in New York on September 7th, 1982, which was the first Friday of my freshman year in high school. And uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a film I hate, uh, opened the <laughs> Friday after June 6th, 1986, which was the Friday after I graduated high school. So those four years really are the heart of the matter when it comes to these type of movies. And look, I was a teenager. These were made for teenagers. They were for me. And uh, I identified with... Uh, the anarchic, uh, anti-authoritarian bent of them. And, um, you know, I, I had the uh, hormonal issues that these films uh, serviced as well. So <laughs> yeah. that's how it came to be. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit because teen movies um, are not anything new. I mean, the, the first kind of beach party movies right. started hitting in the 1950s. American International Productions had an entire series that I think older listeners will remember with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Uh, called the Beach Party series. In fact, it was six movies, including one set at a ski lodge, which mysteriously had nothing to do with beaches. Um, and there were other 
you know, film houses and studios, including Fox and MGM, that put out a variety of, of these kind of teen exploitation comedies from the 1960s right through uh, basically the early 70s. What is it specifically about the the jump to a more, I guess, high school or college setting that we saw in the 1980s that is so fascinating. Hey, Mike, I want to tie in on that, too. Would you say that it's th those movies, you know, they had those, I don't know what the genre would be, like Blackboard Jungle and things like that, the urban teens that are gone those are, Yeah, juvenile delinquent movies yeah, in the yeah. 50s. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like, as with rock and roll, um, you know, teenagers became a defined market force in the 1950s with the baby boomer generation. And uh, so it, you know, kids like lurid stuff. They like, uh, you know, uh, goofy stuff. And uh, so you have on the one hand, the juvenile delinquent movies of the 50s, which for the teenage audience was mostly wish fulfillment. I wish I could beat up my teacher. And then <laughs> the beach party movies in the 60s, of which not only were there AIP, but there were many, many imitators. And Ski Party is one of the best movies uh, in there. James Brown performs in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, which was oh, another nice. great aspect of those movies. Is they had all the, they showcased all the rock acts of the, of the day. Um, so, and, and they were very surrealistic and Mad Magazine-like and, you know, kind of kitchen sink, anything goes, breaking the fourth wall. And that spirit was really carried over into the 80s movies. Now, why it switched... So really, the um, Rosetta Stone of the teen movies covered in the book is American Graffiti, which, uh, which I really believe is a work of genius. I think it's one of the great films ever made. I wish the director had stopped there and not moved on to his next project in 1977. Which was Star Wars, uh, by the way, if you're not picking up on that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he didn't. So uh, the, the world is what it is. But... Uh, what it what it is then is at that point uh, the baby boomers who had first uh, see you know experienced rock and roll and then uh, the Beach Party movies and then the sixties and then the uh, you know the freeing up and the loosening of what was allowable on screen with the uh, R rating in nineteen sixty eight from the MPAA uh, then you know but turned to their own nostalgia so that's why so many like Porky's uh, which is sort of the definitive like. When we were, when I was a teenager, we just called these Porky's movies. That was the catch-all name for the genre. Porky's was this giant blockbuster hit. It's a very low-budget Canadian film um, about uh, high school reprobates and um, their misadventures in and out of locker rooms that made just a staggering amount of money and uh, begat all these imitators, both from the studios and, and from the many, many... Uh, indie and exploitation houses. So uh, it was the, the people that were making this, the, the basically the guys that were uh, making this were just rewriting their own adolescence, uh, you know, with uh, screenplays and movie cameras and whatever they could get on screen with an R rating. So I think that's how the shift happened. It was really American Graffiti, which, which made in adjusted dollars, something like $775 million in theaters and was nominated for Best Picture and everything. So, so I wanted to talk up, Mike, a little bit. So there was the Hayes Code, which was... Yeah. And it was basically they were censoring movies, if I'm correct. And there was that started in the late 30s, is that correct? Yeah. And then that went up to 68. And a lot of these films uh, were a response to that. Or like a freeing of 
what they could and couldn't be done. Well, let, let's back up just for people that don't know the Hayes Code. There is a period in the golden age of filmmaking in Hollywood called the pre-code era, where films were made with, with recognizable stars in sound. I mean, people like Olivia de Havilland. Well, that was and, sound. Wasn't that what kicked all this off? Well, it was, it was basically there was a concern over the depiction of loose women, drugs, marital infidelity. And the Hayes Code came in as a response to this, much as it happened in, in comic books, actually. It was a reaction to the idea that people were being polluted by this entertainment and it would lead America down a path of moral ruin. So you've got to remember when that came in. Uh, the golden age of Hollywood is, is actually you know, designated pre-code and post-code. And it's, it's very interesting because many films that were made post-1939 uh, had to do incredibly bizarre and elaborate things to not fall afoul of it, such as never showing a married couple in bed together. You know, that's why Dick Van Dyke on television was actually never, you know, in bed with his wife, which is odd. So in the 1960s, when some of that loosened and we started having the first X-rated and R-rated films, and Mike, you know, I, I know you can talk about this and really elaborate on this, but it was really kind of broken in the art house first. Serious directors started making films that challenged that in part in response to changing wars and to the Vietnam War. Well, I think it really it started with foreign films um, being imported into America and finding an audience. And uh, they would play in uh, big city art houses and, um, you know, were, were presented as respectable entertainment and they would not. Uh, harassed by the law. Um, and then, uh, you know, the exploitation business took advantage of that. And the, the first wave of those were like nudist colony movies where there would just be sort of these uh, documentary footage of happy people playing volleyball, at the, you know, on the nude beach. And uh, they were very popular. And, uh, and from there, there was the early development of the uh, exploitation movies that were uh, driven by nudity. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, art films came into it with uh, sort of Andy Warhol and Andy Milligan's um, Vapors, which was a short film set in a gay bathhouse. Uh, so the taboos started falling. And by the late 60s, 1968, Jack Valenti, the head of the MPAA, just said, uh, look, we have to address this. We don't want government censorship of our products of the uh Industry will set, will police itself with this the rating system. So, um, you know, and, and whatever it was initially, G, G, P, M, and X, and the X rating, of course, just meant um, no one under seventeen admitted, and there were serious, many serious films, many great seventies art films, six late sixties seventies art films that were rated X. Midnight Cowboy being the most famous because it won Best Picture, and then that was the X rating was then usurped by pornographers who just said, oh. Uh, I'll just slap an X on this, and here we go. There are a couple of things I really appreciate about this book. One of them is the combination of humor and really interesting facts. So in reference to what we were just talking about, the actual first full frontal nudity scene in cinema, I didn't know this, was like 1915. And yeah, I, and the first yeah. popular one was Hedy Lamarr in Ecstasy. Okay. Right. When, when, and before she became a major star. Was that 20s? Uh, late twenties, early thirties, like right? Thirty-one, yeah. maybe. Yeah, she yeah. was like she was an underage, I believe, too, at the time. And uh, the other thing is, it's a massive archive. That's, it it had to be a lot of work, man. And I, I know it was a collaborative effort. Can you talk a little bit about how you got people together? Who who the contributors are, and and how it all came sure. together? And also, Mike, how many of these have you seen? I, I, I've been dying to. I've seen them all. I've seen every one of them. That's amazing. 
How many? Except I, I didn't one, count. Uh, one called Young Lust that's lost, and I'm dying to see. Uh, and before I get to the contributors, I'll just I'll talk about Young Lust for a minute. So Gary Weiss, who was a brilliant documentarian in the first the early years of Saturday Night Live, back when it was it was truer to its initial mission as a variety show for freaks. Um, he would shoot these little, like, kind of three-minute New York documentaries. But he got a movie deal and uh, made Young Lust, which was a – the best I can tell, it's a combination of the teen comedy and a soap opera parody. And uh, it may or may not have been finished. It was apparently screened once to a violent audience reaction and has been completely lost. But there's an amazing poster for it that's in the book. Um that depicts like a teenage uh, couple making out, but there are many arms involved. Uh, <laughs> but and one of them is a horse hoof. <laughs> so is it certainly uh, I'm on destroyed? The for any evidence of that? Oh, okay, so it still may be looming around somewhere. Yeah, if it exists, we don't know. So that's the only one. Um, so in terms of, I started writing this book in 19, we had, I had the idea with a friend of mine named Aaron Lee at the Tale of the Pup hot dog stand in Los Angeles, uh, because we were both uh, movie fanatics and we were specifically interested in this genre. And uh, he, uh, we said, okay, we're going to write this book. We were huge fans of movie uh, compilation books, uh, particularly an author named Danny Peary wrote a series of books called Cult Movies 1, 2, and 3, and the guide for the film fanatic, which was 500 reviews of the movies he thought were essential cinema and Michael Weldon's psychotronic book and, and uh, the research incredibly strange films guide. So we said, let's do that. But for these teen comedies that we grew up with and um, you know, we were only in our early to mid twenties at that point. But um, so I spent, you know, the next two decades working on it. Aaron became a big shot, uh, TV writer and executive producer, family guy, <laughs> and uh, but I did get to finish the book twenty five years later. Um, so it almost got published in nineteen ninety nine by Saint Martin's Press, but the division that was going to put it out got shut down, and my editor got laid off. And then I put it away. And that version of the book was written in the nineties when I was a very different kind of writer. I was still in my head a zine writer. Had that version of the book been published two years ago or a year and a half ago, I'd be in jail now. Um, <laughs> so uh, Ian Christie from Bazillion Points uh, is also, just by coincidence, a, a huge fan of uh, this genre. And Ian and I became friends on Facebook um, when one day he just said to me, what is the 80s porno movie where the... Uh, characters in the kitchen come to life and a piece of toast plays saxophone and i said oh that's rinse dreams night dreams from 1981 real the director's real name is steve sayadian he was like i knew you'd know i knew you would know and then ian and i found out this weird we had a weird parallel life had never met that we knew um we both lived in williamsburg in the early 90s uh he was in my friend dame darcy's band and i never met him we, we, we figured out we were at the same parties and everything, but we just never crossed paths until then. So it was weirdly faded. Um, and then in 2010, I think, yeah, Fantagraphics published Destroy All Movies, The Complete History of Punks in Film. Um, 
and I was so flabbergasted by how great it was. I was in Quimby's, and I brought it to the front desk, and I said to Liz Mason behind the counter there, who's the manager and just the greatest, I said, all right, I'm going home, and I'm pitching the heavy metal answer book to this because I knew Ian had this heavy metal publishing house. So I uh, did that, and five years later, heavy metal movies came out, or four years later. Uh, Which I will add movies. is this large and is complex. Oh, it's way bigger. Yeah. It's, it's way bigger than uh, – that has 850 reviews, and Team Movie Hell has like 350, I think. And uh, heavy metal movies did well enough that Ian was interested in doing the uh, Teen Movie Hell book, initially called Teen Sex Comedies. And then I got queasy about that name at some point, and Ian suggested a, a great name, Last American Virgins. So that was the working title for a while. And then uh, all this, you know, we were sort of putting it uh, into, we weren't really wrapping it up, but we were heading into the final stages of editing in fall 2018 when the Me Too uh, movement erupted. And I had a little uh, moment of clarity, and I said, I am a white man in his 50s who's married, and I'm writing about all these movies. I'm championing, I, I, acting as a champion for these movies that, um, by definition, objectify women and, and, and contain and glorify behaviors that are, you know, mostly illegal. So... Um, I, uh, I just said, I, I can't put this out. I'm not, this is not the time, and, and I have to reconsider the whole project. And I uh, got so stressed out about it, I actually threw up, which has never happened to me over, like, just worry. And I called Ian, and I said, we can't do it. I'll send you back my advance. And uh, he said, well, look, I'm going to put it on ice. We're going to return to it when you're ready. And then um, on Thanksgiving morning, for whatever reason, this idea popped into my head. It's, it was just, it was the voice of whoever saying, Schmuck, you know all these brilliant women who write about movies. Invite them to contribute to the book. So uh, that's what I ended up doing. And um, I then changed the name to Teen Movie Hell because that's what I felt like I was in at that point. <laughs> and uh, I got uh, Katie Reif is somebody I'm. Uh, have worked with a lot. She's at the AV Club and has been there for a number of years. Kat Ellinger is a brilliant uh, critic and essayist from the British Film Institute, who I do a podcast with called Busted Guts about comedy movies. Her essays are uh, phenomenal, by the way. Thank well, I'll, I'll, I'll thank you on her behalf. I'll say, hey, thank you. Um, and, uh, Kayla Denise is an absolute genius. She wrote a book called House of Psychotic Women, which is an uh, one of a kind, uh, both as a memoir and as a film book. Um, and and all the other contributors in there are just, uh, you know, just people that I've been honored to know and to read. And it was great to be able to um, have a part in getting them published in this book and be associated with them. And it made it a much better book than I would have published initially. Well, on that note, let's actually take a moment and hear uh, a selection from Teen Movie Hell. We are speaking with Mike McPadden. As always, we want to thank uh, Shanna Van Volt, who is our voiceover reader for these uh, readings. And as always, we want to thank International Anthem. Crush Love has provided the music for this segment. We'll be right back after this short interlude. We're speaking with Mike McPadden. He is the author and editor of Teen Movie Hell. My Bodyguard, 1980. 
Heartfelt, funny, powerfully sad in spots, and ultimately uplifting, my bodyguard cast Chris Makepeace, Rudy Gurner from Meatballs, as Clifford Peach, a poor little rich high school transplant who relocates to Chicago to live with his single dad, Martin Malt, who manages a luxury hotel and his zany pepper-tongued grandmother, Ruth Gordon. Instantly upon pulling into Lakeview High School in a stretch limo, Clifford is beset by bullies, leading the meanies as Melvin Moody, Matt Dillon, and he runs a nifty schoolyard protection racket. Kids who suffer his routine abuse and fork over their lunch money to him and his goons will be shielded from Ricky Linderman, Adam Baldwin. Though he keeps to himself, Linderman, Lakeview High's resident hulking psychopath, is rumored to have murdered several people, including his own kid brother. Clifford hatches the novel idea of hiring Ricky to defend him. Ricky initially refuses, but relents as the two become friends. Together, they scour junkyards for a rare cylinder to complete Ricky's motorcycle restoration project. Clifford invites his pal up to meet his dad and grandma, who notices Ricky trying to hide scars on his wrist from a suicide attempt. Grandma gently places her hand on the troubled kid's wound and whispers, You're among friends, Ricky. The moment is both deeply heartfelt and evocative of Gordon's own revelation of a concentration camp tattoo in her best-known work, Harold and Mott. The boys grow close, and after Ricky thwarts a moody attack, Clifford calls his knight in torn dungarees, My Bodyguard. The title sticks. Unlike the John Hughes movies, which also took place in Chicago a few years later, My Bodyguard delivers a perception and portrayal of class issues between unlikely partners that feels true and never condescends. Clifford lives in a lakefront penthouse and travels to school by chauffeur, but he is the polar opposite of the too wise, too cool Ferris Bueller. Clifford is savvy enough to come up with the bodyguard strategy, but he's also confused, lost, and vulnerable, not to mention that he needs a bodyguard. Urban, quote-unquote, white trash Ricky is no salt of the friggin' earth, tell it like it is noble knuckle-dragger in the order of Judd Nelson's Bender character on The Breakfast Club. He's lonely and shattered, burdened by a heartbreaking secret that has pushed him into isolation. He hides from human contact behind ticking time bomb image, and we can perceive the hurt that's underneath. My bodyguard also comes heavy on the laps, largely thanks to Matt Dillon. He's truly intimidating as Moody, but ups the comic aspects of blowhard bravado to flawless fury. Joan Cusack is great as a brainy Moody victim and potential romantic possibility for Ricky. Admirably, the movie leaves that question unresolved. Paul Quant is the real riot, though. He plays Clifford's stilted, world-weary pal Carson, delivering every deadpan line in a voice that suggests he has never once blown his nose. Though the film was a hit, My Bodyguard came a little early and aimed a little young, and was somewhat buried in public consciousness after the 1980s onslaught of high school raunch flicks and less artful John Hughes efforts. Plus, the movie was a little too raw, too real, and cut a little too deep to throw on in the background of pizza and smuggled beer rec room party. You could say My Bodyguard was an adult film trapped in an adolescent body and so didn't fit in with the popular crowd, but what legitimately cool kid ever does? And that was a selection from Teen Movie Hell, and we are speaking with the author and editor of that book, Mike McPadden. And that actually uh, a selection I chose because it focused on one of my favorite movies of the genre, which is the movie My Bodyguard. And uh, that is a is a classic. And as you wrote in uh, the essay, you noted it was an adult movie kind of hiding in a teen uh, movie body. And that was something I wanted to get at uh, kind of before we, we go to break, because a number of well-known directors, actors, actresses, writers have actually worked profitably in this genre. I mean, many people might not know that Jonathan, the late Jonathan Demme, uh, who is famous for a number of films, including The Silence of the Lambs, got his start with Roger Corman uh, on Caged Heat, I believe was his first film, uh, Women in Prison Exploitation film. Uh, 
a number of great actors and actresses started out in these. And My Bodyguard, actually, I chose it because I happened to see it uh, as a kid. I believe my mom took me to see it. And that had a, an incredible cast. Matt Dillon, Chris Makepeace, Anna Baldwin, uh, who, of course, went on to a, a profitable TV career. Can you talk a little bit about how this genre actually served as a stepping stone for a number of, of pretty well-known uh, contributors to the movie industry? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the, the, you mentioned Corman. I mean, everybody came out of there in the 70s. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich with uh, uh, Targets and uh, Francis Ford Coppola with a bunch of uh, little horror movies and stuff. So, and, and Jonathan Demme, you mentioned Cage Heat. That's a really weird, arty women in prison film. Definitely worth seeing. Uh, it's because Corman would, base, would say to them, I need this many fist fights, this many shower scenes, this many car chases. Do whatever you want. And <laughs> That, so it was film school, you know, it was professional film school for these people. Um, and so, you know, so I think, you know, genre movies, low budget movies, exploitation movies, up until, you know, anybody, the anybody can do it era of modern technology well, was always the, uh, you know, the gateway for uh, talents uh, large and small to get through. And yeah, I mean, some of them, you know, Johnny Depp is in private resort with Rob Morrow and, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, a lot of surprise stars throughout the book. John Cusack was very much a teen comedy star in the eighties before, uh, becoming a adult movie star in the, uh, late eighties, probably into the nineties. Um, so yeah, I think in that way, it's, it's typical of, uh, any kind of B-movie or low-budget filmmaking, it's, it's a springboard. Mike, I wanted to ask you, you and I done some readings together. Mike used, and his wife used to do a, a literary salon and a hair salon. It was actually phenomenal, and it was very fun. But a lot, I've seen you read a couple times about uh, hanging out in Times Square when you were a teenager. Yeah. And How much of that was part of your education and moving into this love of film? Oh, it was it was tremendous. Um, yeah, I went to uh, high school. I, I lived in Brooklyn and went to uh, Catholic Military Academy uh, in Manhattan. And uh, we were just two subway stops from 42nd Street, which at that point was, you know, not just like the, you know, unseemly deuce that we know, but was also just the trash movie capital of the world. Uh, there were a dozen grindhouses on, 20, on 42nd Street, many more around Times Square, where you could see a triple feature of movies playing nowhere else, possibly in the world, for $1.99. Where does that name and come from? it was from the most House? fun way to see movies, uh, that type of film, which were, you know, like most movies, most of them were terrible, and uh, but the ones that were great were so insanely great and made greater by the atmosphere in the audience. I will say, looking back, it was insane. <laughs> I mean, this was uh, the era that I grew up in. In 1982, I was 13. I started high school. My parents woke me up at 6 a.m. and said, go get on the subway for an hour. The 1982 New York City subway, go to school and come back by yourself when you're done. Um, I have nieces and nephews now who are that age, and I would never allow them to do that <laughs> or in, in any circumstances. So... Uh, the subway is much I, safer now, man. I, I remember New York in that era as well. So it's yeah. much safer now. Oh, it's insanely safer now. I still wouldn't let my niece take the subway by herself to school, <laughs> um, which is, you know, whatever, my own paranoia. But, but perhaps it's just, you know, 
PTSD from being mugged four times in the four years I went to high school on the subway. Uh, but so, so yeah, Times Square, you know, that whole sensory overload and, um, you know, the illicit activity going on and the, uh, you know, Caligula-like carnival atmosphere uh, really informed my sensibility. I was everything that was forbidden to me up until that point and uh, everything that terrified me and that I uh, couldn't get enough with at the, at the same time. And I also saw a lot of, you know, really crazy movies that uh, I otherwise would not have had the opportunity to see. Mike well, asked, uh, what was the, where does the term grindhouse come from? Do you know, Mike? Yeah, they, uh, the projectors would just grind the movies out. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. It was, it was not a compliment. grinding all night until the movie <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was not a compliment. Thank you. We're speaking actually with Mike McPadden. He is the author and editor of the new book, Teen Movie Hell. It's out from Bazillion Points. And you are listening to I-94 when we come back after these messages to remind you who makes this station possible. We'll continue our conversation and we'll have another selection from Teen Movie Hell. This is I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. <laughs> And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. National Lampoon's Last Resort, 1994. National Lampoon's Last Resort unspools as a contest to determine how far the mighty hath fallen, and that goes for the stars, the director, and National Lampoon. First comes the perilous plummet of the mighty quarries, Feldman and Haim. A very long half-decade past their teen heartthrob primes, they play Sam Carver and Dave Eisenhower, fired fast food employees arriving at an island getaway. There they battle a greedy corporate land developer who wants to snatch paradise away from Sam's uncle Rex, Jeffrey Lewis, Clint Eastwood's pal, and Juliet's dad, accepting payment here for spending a couple weeks in the sun in a pirate costume. Then comes the downward dive of mighty director Rafael Zielinski, a versatile filmmaker who tapped into teen sex comedy magic via screwballs and ballet girls. With Last Resort, Zielinski is busted down to direct to video duty, overseeing Corey Feldman as he struts about in sleeveless black blazers and fedora hatbands, sans hat, around his head. Next is the tumultuous tumble of National Lampoon. The late 20th century's most important humor wellspring debuted its film division on a note of genius with Animal House, then stumbled repeatedly in the years ahead between vacation movies until finally, come the dawn of straight-to-tape crapioca, the once venerable name was slapped onto way too many crimes against motion picture technology. In National Lampoon's Last Resort, when Dave, Corey Haim, is smooched by sweet and sexy Sonia, Maureen Flanagan, he immediately looks into the camera and says, boom. The movie loops that boom three times in instant succession just before jumping to a quick reaction shot from Sam and Uncle Rex before dropping in a fourth repeat of Haim's boom. All in all, the big How Hath the Mighty Fallen competition in National Lampoon's Last Resort is a tie for last, except in Corey Feldman. He essentially remade this importance as South Beach Academy, and even today, he still gets to be Corey Feldman. Boom. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 105.5 FM, WLPN Chicago, Lumpin' Radio. And this is I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello again. And this is the second half of I-94. And if you are wondering what that was you were listening to as we came out of break, that was a selection from Mike McPadden's Teen Movie Hell. He is the author and editor of that book. It is a reference guide to the teen, I guess, exploitation movies of the uh, 60s through the 90s. Uh, and we're speaking with him today about his work. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. 
Appreciate it very much. So, you know, one of the things we were talking about before the break uh, was that some of these movies really were a stepping stone for uh, careers and great actors. A lot of them, however, were just garbage. And uh, you <laughs> don't, <laughs> you, I, I can't say the phrase I would say because we're an FCC show, but uh, you don't really sugarcoat that in some of these. Uh, in fact, the selection I played was from the National Lampoon's Last Resort movie, which is a true piece <laughs> oh, of wow. garbage starring Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, the late Corey Haim, I believe. Oh my gosh, I've never seen that. Well, don't see it. Can, can, can we talk a little bit about what it is about the bad film that still makes them attractive because I mean you know there are there are good films in in this genre there are good films in any genre but as you also mentioned earlier a lot of these films absolutely stink so what makes you stick around for them well in the case you know I mean to me the only way a movie is bad is if I'm bored by it um because you know so so you know I it's and National Lampoon's Last Resort is not boring um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a horrendously made film and, uh, an experience you should have if you're interested in, uh, scratching your head and wondering what, what you're doing with your life. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, that's what's fun to me. The idea of making a movie seems so impossible that when it goes wrong and you see the strings and you see the seams, it's completely fascinating and exciting in its own way. And, um, and, and as long as it's not boring, that's what it comes down to. That's really my only my only criteria for a bad movie is uh, so whether I'm bored or not. You can put up with Corey Feldman saying the word boom on a loop throughout the entire film? For the rest of my life, I would love to have that projected into my brain, yeah. <laughs> that's, boom, that's, boom. That's, yeah. Oh, sounds awful. Um, because it's, you know, it's a unique experience. It's like, why don't we go to the movie? Or I should say this. So I go to the movies to be surprised. I go to... Uh, feel and see things that I otherwise might not feel and see and, uh, you know, to have an experience outside of my reality. And the movies, as we've come to understand them in Hollywood terms, no longer serve that purpose. And when a Corey Feldman on a loop saying boom, which happens in National Lampoon's Last Resort, is like something that you'd never come across in any kind of sane circumstance so it's great to plug into a sane an insane circumstance and enjoy it and come back is it an enthusiastic is he like boom or is it just yeah no it's no it's boom like you know this is this is we're rocking this is great ah, yeah. i got you yeah and it's pain painfully on hip um you know but can we talk a little bit about um you know we're, we're talking about bad movies and and enjoyment and stuff like that and you, you said to me it kind of interested me why do you think the movies that are being made now don't scratch that same itch as these movies that were done in 1985. And and just kind of following up on that, I would have thought in the, what is really a golden era of streaming media, I mean, Netflix is producing films like crazy, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, we're still not seeing a lot of, you know, the kind of classic B movies that really existed, um, I should point out, as a genre, right from the 1920s, really into probably the mid-90s. Um, you know, there were B-movies, you know, all the gangster noir films and stuff that I happen to be a, an enormous fan and devotee of were essentially B-movies. You know, they were they were filler movies made for a double feature as well. Why why have these disappeared and why uh, is Hollywood not producing these kind of uh, simple genre films anymore? Well, they, it's a couple of things. They don't make enough money. Um, 
And it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an art form whose time has passed like vaudeville or, you know, popular jazz and things. It's just, it's, it's served its purpose and, and people have moved on. Um, one thing that I've wondered, because I'm always like, why did movies get, why did B movies, why did bad movies turn legitimately bad in the nineties? And my guess is that that was when, uh, grindhouse theaters stopped, uh, you know, literally fell apart in most cities. Drive-ins were closing and everything went direct to video. Once a viewer has an option of fast forwarding, it, they don't really need, you don't really need to entertain the viewer the whole time. That's my guess. So movies could be sloppier and, and there was at least this idea prior to that, that maybe you had to keep the audience in their seats. So you would try to be at least that engaging in these B movies. That's again, that's just that's a, a heady leap on my part. Um, but, you know, they don't sell tickets. Uh, people want spectacle. They want what um, no surprises in movies. They want to have the exact same experience every time. And, um, you know, that goes for the biggest Hollywood movies down to even indie films that make it to theaters for the most part. Um, but, you know, streaming-wise, uh, Netflix and, and other services are creating and, and showcasing many, many great options of film uh the experience of the theater even prior to uh the pandemic i think uh was was going by the wayside now it's just been really sped up i have uh recently subscribed to shutter and there's a lot of b movies made in other countries uh, uh, thailand and korea including the gangster and horror genres i don't i don't know if that's just because it's a different type of system and and probably they have so many people viewing them that you probably it's probably easier to make a lot of money off of them. But would you consider a, is it Takeshi Mike Takeshi Miki Miki Miki? Would those be considered B movies? Because I mean those are pretty. Uh, no, I mean that's that's an interesting. I don't know. I mean they're they're genre movies. They're they're oddball movies. They're hybrids of art and exploitation. Um, so I would I don't know that I'd call him B. I mean he's kind of a genre unto himself. I. I certainly love his stuff i was just curious i know it's not a he's not a teen movie guy on and, and then uh moving forward uh, you know the hot for teacher uh, chapter and the essay that was uh because i had also kind of thought of that genre as you know the van halen and when the essayist i forgot their name described that kayla janice yeah she was saying it was you know a bunch of half-dressed women dancing in front of a bunch of eight-year-olds i was like wow that could not be done today, and that's a really weird thing. <laughs> but I did a little research, and and in, and in reading her essay, it was more male teachers exploit their female students and vice versa. But you would think from media that it was the other way around. But would we want to talk about that genre a little bit, Mike? Well, the most famous ones are uh, Private Lessons from 1981, which really is what started the craze um, – came out of nowhere uh, an independently produced film uh, by the guys who uh, were involved in the 21 game show scandal in the 50s and then went on to create the Joker's Wild. They used their game show money wow. to finance. Um, this is really weird. That's they bought the, bought the rights to a, a novel called Philly, 
which is a psychological, which is a, a, a thriller about a kidnapping that borders on horror and turns it into this wacky teen sex comedy called Private Lessons with uh, Sylvia Crystal, who was uh, a big international star from the Emmanuel movies, which were these very arty, softcore sex films from France. Uh, that made dollar for dollar. That was the most profitable film of 1981. Wow. Came out of nowhere, huge hit surprise. That led to Porky's, which led to everything else. Um, so, and and then My Tutor is another very famous example of that. And those are both, and and that was definitely a trope in these movies. Um, was the uh, very uh, sexy and desirable teacher, and the very uh, most oftentimes. 25-year-old playing a teenager uh, male student uh, who engage in, in, you know, their forbidden love. Um, in terms of the male teachers exploiting, the, the, that was a 70s thing. The 70s teen movies, uh, especially those made by, like, Crown International Pictures on the West Coast and some of the East Coast stuff by, like, Chuck Vincent, uh, being the 70s, you know, much darker, grittier uh more unpleasant tone. Some um, of the Jack Hill stuff is pretty pretty rough too. I mean, you you look at some of those, and it's it's pretty clear there's a real undercurrent of misogyny in some of that stuff. Well, uh, Jack Hill stuff. I mean, he made Coffee. He made the best Pam Greer movies. He made Witchblade Sisters, which is yeah, he also made what is it, the Big Jailhouse? Wasn't that? Uh, yeah, yeah, those yeah, uh, the yeah. Big Bird Cage. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that well, was those, produced by a woman too. Yeah, and, and it's all about women breaking out of prison and and being hung up and tortured. We should point out. Yeah, but then they blast their way to freedom at the end. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There, there's there's a real some some of the you know mentioning the '70s one. There is a much as you mentioned a much darker undercurrent. Yeah. Than yeah. than there is the '80s ones tend to be um, almost Fluffy. '50s in in their yeah. kind of naivete. Yeah. The '70s yeah. ones uh, presume violence. I would say it's like horror movies. You know, you think of like Last yeah. House on the Left and. I spit on your grave, and then we moved into like the slat. Those '70s horror movies are dark stuff. Yeah, that oh, is yeah. true. Yeah, that is true. You guys were talking about it's come up a couple times, I think, in the show. Things that could never be written or produced today, and then we were talking about how the, this, this genre has kind of dropped off, or that the opportunity to make money from it has dropped off. And what what's interesting to me is that. All this stuff is claimed to be taboo now. You, you couldn't print this. You couldn't uh, air this nowadays. But there's more access than ever to, to all kinds of stuff on the Internet. I mean, you can watch people dying almost live on the Internet. You, all kinds of sex anywhere you go on the Internet. But the – and that's, I feel like that's part of what made this genre um, – explode in the 80s you would talk about it in an afterward cable didn't come to you until 1986 you know before then you right. had like what three five channels tv shut off yeah. by midnight um do you think that's part of uh the genre dissipating in, in revenue is that you you don't need films to be surprised anymore you can poke around on the internet for 20 minutes and yeah, absolutely. Uh, basically, what killed this the teen movie genre that's covered in the book is that, uh, you know, teenage boys had access to hardcore pornography via VHS tapes in the late 80s. And that was it, because basically that's who was buying tickets to these movies. The selling point was the sex and nudity. And once that was uh, usurped by, um, you know, the hard stuff, 
there was no chance uh, for this. There was no place for this stuff to go. Um, and, and you point out, yeah, no, it, it, the question to me that people ask, could, could any of, you know, could any of these B movies uh, be made today? And the short answer is no. The long answer is hell no. Um, and I, I'm very curious, and, and no one seems to talk about it, and certainly no one like is, has, that I'm aware of has conducted any kind of like worthwhile study on this, but it's this crazy societal hypocrisy where, this, where our art and entertainment is so heavily um, considered for its offensive possibilities, where, as you said, anything is possible uh, with a couple of clicks for a five-year-old to find on the internet. And, um, yeah, I don't know what that societal hypocrisy is about, and I don't understand it, and I'm not capable of understanding it. But uh, There's actually a great essay in the book, I should point out. I think it's one of the first ones after your intro, Mike, by Kat Ellinger. Uh, yeah. I forget, in the era of the Ellinger code is laughing at yeah. an animal house possible. Yeah. Of course, I mean, that every society, and, you know, America is not unique in this, does tend to reevaluate art of the past and elevate certain things and, and put down certain things. Um, I've always found it interesting that a movie like Blazing Saddles, however, could not be made today, which is possibly the most anti-racist movie you could get. It would probably be accused of racism because of certain words that are in the film. Well, there's no context anymore. It's just text. Yeah. That's all that's ever considered. Yeah. Speaking of which, and you brought up something very interesting, which was the VHS boom. Um, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit because it was kind of the last gasp uh, for the Grindhouse films. You you note that it did uh, change the genre and it did some things to these films, but it also seemed to revitalize it. I, I do remember a time when all of a sudden... Uh, all these films that we had never been able to see or never even had any access to suddenly were available at your local blockbuster down the street. Uh, or better yet, your local individual video shop. And of course, here in Chicago, there were a number of great ones. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that gave the genre kind of maybe a last breath of life and, and what it did for filmmakers? Oh, I think it just ex it just exploded it. You know, it just it flamed out uh, a blaze of glory in terms of productivity and consumption by fans uh you know i mean it, vhs to me was the greatest and the worst thing that ever happened because i so love the theatrical experience and i love everything attached to it uh the posters the movie uh the ads on the newspaper and the radio and uh but at the same time you know i was never going to get to see uh you know jean-luc godard's weekend any other way uh, just to pull one out that blew my mind when I rented it as a teenager. Um, and, you know, and, and if these movies left, and that was, you know, you talk about the pre-cable days. If you didn't catch a movie uh, when it was aired on TV, that was it. Your chance was gone if it was something obscure. I mean, you know, we waited once a year for The Wizard of Oz as kids. Um, so there was suddenly this access, and it was uh, exactly what, we, what I wanted and too much of what I wanted. And... I still like seeing these movies in the theater. And, and this is what it comes down to. A lot of them, though, were bad bets. You know, a movie costs five bucks. The rental costs a dollar. And I didn't have to watch the whole thing if it was bad. So um, I think that, you know, ultimately killed a lot of the creativity and um, killed a lot of the joy of, of, of movie going. 
But it definitely it provided this explosion with this secondary market where, uh, you know, a B-movie could take on an entire new life uh, on home video. As could, you know, movies that slip through the cracks that were from Hollywood. Yeah, and of course, people that are interested in, in seeing some of these films, I should point out that Amazon Prime has a very large and very dubious uh, kind of grindhouse film section. Uh, Turner Classic Movies has actually been playing the Beach Party movies, if you want to see some of those. Um, Criterion Collection, bizarrely enough, also has put out some very strange editions of films, including Weekend is not a teen movie film at all. It is a classic of French cinema, but that is on the Criterion Collection. And that actually brings me to kind of a place that we're, we're running out of time here, Mike, and I do really appreciate you speaking to us today, but I kind of wanted to wrap up with, you know, with channels like Shutter, Criterion, Amazon Prime, Netflix, I would have thought there would have been more impetus to try to do some of the things um, that the movies in this era did. Because one thing, and, and you point this out, they may have been bad, but they weren't boring. A lot of them took chances. A lot of them took chances on unknown directors, unknown actors. Why do you think we're not necessarily seeing that despite the explosion in direct-to-home videos, particularly during a pandemic when none of us can go to a theater? <laughs> uh you know, it's just too much product, I think. Um, you know, I'm a zine publisher. I miss those days because there was this obstacle to expressing yourself. It took a lot of work to put out a Xerox publication. Uh, it takes no work to tweet. And that has been, uh, I think, what's certainly in the horror genre where there's just, I mean, I don't. It, it's, it's not inconceivable to me that a thousand new horror films come out each week in some form or another to be streamed online or, or found somewhere. Um, you know, there, 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 there used to be, and this is very elitist and snobby of me, but there were, it required a level of commitment that I think led to more interesting product. And, um, I think with, with the erasure of that, uh, we have a lot of less interesting product and a lot less. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, We've been speaking with Mike McPadden. He is the author of Teen Movie Hell, a crucible of coming-of-age comedies from Animal House to Zap. It's out now from Bazillion Points. We're actually going to close uh, with a reading from your book because we always like to give the authors the last word. And, of course, I had to choose your write-up of Supervan, which is a truly <laughs> dreadful film that I personally have seen about a van that goes and wins a contest. It is also important because it has a uh, cameo appearance by none other than the poet Chuck Bukowski who appears, I believe, as a uh, wet T-shirt judge, if, I, if I'm correct, Sounds in between right. one he of does. his benders. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, is, it is a member of the short-lived van uh, genre. There was, believe it or not, there was a genre, uh, a short-lived one. Van exploitation. Van exploitation, yeah. yeah, in the 70s. Uh, people actually, I, I believe there was even a comic book that came out recently that was a fake version of the van exploitation uh, era. So we do want to leave you with that. Mike, before we let you go, is there anything that you would recommend for our, our audience to see that is kind of the pinnacle of this genre? Uh, yeah, I mean, American Graffiti. That's what it comes down to. Uh, I hate to admit yeah. this. I've never yeah. seen American Graffiti. It's great. It's I'm phenomenal. It. And, and for the 80s, Risky Business is a masterpiece. Uh, had it come out five years earlier before Porky's, it would be thought of uh, alongside The Graduate as one of the great American coming-of-age movies. Um, you know, fortunately, because it came out after Porky's, it got made, A, B, and then became very popular. But um, it put it in a, a 
an improper context. That movie's a uh, completely. That's a flawless film. Yeah, I would agree with you. That's Rebecca De Mornay and Tom Cruise, by the way, for people yeah. that don't know. And it is a fabulous film. Rebecca De Mornay is very, very underrated. It's set in Chicago suburbs, too. Isn't yeah. It? Yes, yeah, it is. On the, yes, yeah. it is. The original and, title was White Boys on the Lake. That's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. There are also, you know, one th you know, we speaking of Chicago movies before we let you go, you don't seem to be a super fan of some of the movies that were made here by a guy whose first <laughs> name is John and whose last name is Hughes. And that, that does surprise me. Uh well, I want to say I'm a, I'm, I'm a tremendous fan of John Hughes' uh, work in The National Lampoon, which is psychotic and evil and hilarious. Uh, I mean, he basically, he gentrified the genre. He, uh, he turned it, uh, you know, his movies are the Disney movies of uh, teen comedies of the 80s. And um, some of them are very funny, and uh, some of them are completely heinous. And when I, uh, when I say that, I think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad somebody else other than me doesn't thinks that. <laughs> it's one of the worst movies ever made. Hey, Mike, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so Thank much, you so Mike. Much. We really Thanks, appreciate, Mike. It. appreciate it. Man. Hey, everybody, you've been listening to I-94 with Mike McPadden, Teen Movie Hell. Up next, I believe we're talking about, uh, who are we talking about? Oh, yes, the short stories of Frank Yerby. So stick around for that and catch whatever's coming up next here on Lumpin' Radio, WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. Supervan, 1977. The star of Supervan, of course, is the title character, a futuristic solar-powered high-tech highway cruising dream machine that can emit a signal to disable speed-tracking radar guns. As designed by George Barris, creator of TV's Batmobile, Monkeysmobile, Monstermobile, and numerous other one-of-a-kind vehicular masterworks, the Supervan is the very four-wheeled embodiment of 1970s shag carpet super coolness. Plus, its proper name is Bandora. Young Clint Morgan, Mark Schneider, quits a dead-end gig at his dad's garage to pilot Bandora to the nation's premier gathering of such vehicles, the International Freakout in Kansas City, where a cool $5,000 prize is at stake. Along the way, Clint rescues rich runaway Karen, Katie Saylor, from, as she puts it, quote, friendly bikers on their way to a rape, end quote. He later runs afoul of mid-American motors honcho T.B. Trenton, Morgan Woodward, who aims to quash Mandora's environmentally friendly fuel system and who turns out to be Karen's father. Slapstick spinning and irate highway patrolman Banks, Len Lesser, Seinfeld's uncle Leo, gives chase throughout. Most of Supervan consists of uneventful home movie caliber footage souped up rolling bedrooms traversing the bucolic byways of Missouri and Kansas. CB radio slang and soft rock dominate the soundtrack. All of this is even more pleasant than it sounds. The Freakout, where Vandora ultimately triumphs, features a cheap jack wet t-shirt contest prominently attended by leering, groping, orangutan bodied blue shtick literary giant Charles Bukowski. The esteemed poet laureate of liver failures on lump-hugging tight white t-shirt reads wet t-shirt contest Waterboy. Ask somebody who still refers to Bukowski as Hank to tell you why they think that's cool. Then, while they explain, just imagine those cool vans rolling around the flat Midwestern highways. It's a cool trick and work's been subjected to almost any kind of dead-end dialogue. Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Mike McPadden, editor of Teen Movie Hell, out now from Bazillion Points. This episode originally aired on July 30th, 2020.
I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.